1: That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com.
2: Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. My name is Evan Ratliff. Uh, The other hosts of the show are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. They're here with me now. How are you guys? Good day. Good day. Hi, you guys.
0: It's so nice to see you missed you. Evan, I'm excited about this week's show. I feel like it's been a long time coming. I'm so glad you finally did it. Tell us about your guest.
2: Well, you guys know I like—I don't like to uh, overpromise on these shows, but I personally am really excited about the conversation that I had with this guest. It was Habat Abbas. She is a journalist and producer from northern Syria. Over the last decade, she's reported on the Syrian civil war the fight against ISIS, the Turkish invasion of Northeastern Syria, and all about the Kurdish region, which she's from. And over that time, she's also worked with a bunch of international news outlets as what's kind of commonly in the business known as a news fixer or a fixer. And that can mean a lot of different things. But basically, it's someone on the ground who assists international journalists who show up and want to do reporting. And it can mean like logistics, finding sources, security, translation, getting access to people and places. And if you've listened to the show, a lot of the foreign correspondents we've had on mention this type of person, the local journalists they've worked with, and they're often very appreciative of this person. I myself have worked with local reporters on a lot of different stories. And a lot of the overseas reporting that you read that's most incredible. It's just impossible without fixers. And Habat is one of the best on the planet at this. So she's worked with like ABC, the Washington post, Der Spiegel, Sunday times, daily mail, tons of TV stations in Europe, print outlets in Europe. She actually won this award called the Kurt Schork award last year for news fixer of the year. So for a long time, I've wanted to talk to someone who does this type of work about what it's like for them. And Habat is a brilliant journalist in her own right. And I wanted to talk about what it was like to balance her own work and doing this type of fixer work, how difficult it is in a war zone, what it's like to stay there when the rest of the crew goes home. And she was just incredible talking
0: about this stuff. So
2: I'm very, very excited to have
0: her on. I am excited because we have been trying to do this episode for, I would say, one full decade at this point uh, to talk to a, a producer. That's that's how long it takes, apparently, for us to make this happen. So uh, very, very exciting. Yeah, it's an, it's an important one. And uh, I legit cannot wait to listen. Uh, we are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make this show. Thanks to them. And now here's Evan with Habat Abbas.
2: How about uh, welcome to the show? Welcome to the long form podcast.
3: Thank you, Ivan.
2: And you're you're in Berlin right now. Is that that's right?
3: Yes, I am in Berlin, waiting for the border between Rojava and Kurdistan to be open to go back home.
2: And what what uh, what took you to Berlin in this moment in the first place?
3: Uh, so basically, I get a scholarship with the reporter without border in uh, 2020. But because of the pandemic, I couldn't come uh, around. Uh, I've been here in Berlin uh, um, from May until September. And uh, when while I was here, the training, it was four months. So it's finished. But uh, the American withdrawing from Afghanistan happened. And we could see how the women are, uh, what they are facing after that. So RSF, they discussed with me that if I go back to Rojava and uh, we know that in a, some moments the Americans are going to withdraw again from there, as already they done partially in uh, 2019. Mm. Uh, so they said, we can't help you in a way. And we do believe like uh, a uh, will be a target for those, you know, different kinds of troops that they wanted to attack, basically Turkey. And uh, as a as a security uh, plan, we wanna um, to help you to issue kind of residency, freelancer residency to Europe, basically Germany, in order to, if anything happened there on the ground, you will be able to get out of the uh, Rojava because even without this, I cannot even cross to Iraq. You know, like uh, there is only one entry point to Iraq, and uh, with my Syrian nationality, I can't cross with that, but with the European residency, I can at least cross to. Kurdistan. And this is how I get one year residency and planning to, you know, continue my my work as a journalist and do stories from the ground as time.
2: Can you tell me a little bit about where you're from originally and sort of how you got into journalism?
3: So basically, I born in 1988 in Kamishli city, one of the biggest city in northeast of Syria in Rojava now. And it's kind of ironic when I born at that time, it was a war in Syria. It was like a uh, Syrian in embargo in 88 because of this uh, attack on Israel. And then there was uh, sanctions against Syria. And I remember my parents, they said, when you born, there was uh, no milk for the kids at that time. And my father have to go until almost it's a city like a seven hundred kilometers until he gets some milk, for example, to just bring it at that time for me. So even my, you know, like uh, when I came, it was already like uh, in Syria, like embargo and the war. And at the same time, for the Kurdish people, there was a Halabja happened and and massacres from Saddam Hussein against the Kurd in uh, the Kurdish uh, in the Kurdistan in Iraq. So it's like a kind of 88, it was already a year of like massacres and killing and the war in both Syria and Iraq and, of course, Kurdistan in, in, in the middle of this. I, I, I lived in Qamishli. I started my education at a primary school until high school in, in, um, in there. Then I moved to Aleppo University. I started uh, English literature in the Aleppo University. Of course, my choice, it was uh, to study journalism and political science. But uh, I was not member of Albas party, and there is a special sections in the um, for the Kurd it was not possible to get in. Even if you will get in as a Kurd as a minority, uh, you have to be member of Albas party.
2: Were you forbidden from joining the party because you were Kurdish, or was it that you choose not to join and then you were discriminated against because of that?
3: no i uh, i was not member of the party because my father used it to be communist and not believing in albas party ideals and uh, didn't find it like uh it's fit our cause as a Kurd and our principles so my father he was not member and he already educated us to not be and of course i, I, I didn't find myself neither in albas nor in any even Kurdish party to our days you know like uh, i don't think the the political parties in middle east they are playing uh, kind of right way to serve the people so mm, to our days i am not a member of any party and as a as a cost i I couldn't study what i wanted to uh, be so i just studied english literature and i graduated from alipo university 2010 i was planning to do a master or travel outside of syria but uh, the war started this is why i couldn't continue my education regarding political science So I do do journalism since 2012, almost. Of course, in the Kurdish area, there was no journalism. There was no journalist outlets. There was no, like, no, nothing, you know. It was all based in the big cities, basically. So when we started, it was from scratch, and it was with very limited tools. There was no smartphone yet. The internet, it was something new for us. The laptops, it was expensive. So, you know, like all these uh, uh, tools also, it was not not there, you know, like even for the cameras, it was like no camera shops, you know, except like you go to just take a photo for the ID. Even I remember the first uh, person who gave us a training for the camera, it was a person who used it to film the weddings, you know, like <laughs> this is how we start this. And for myself, I was just going to the Internet, to the cafe shop, download, downloaded some materials from the BBC or whatever, how to do the news or articles or stuff like that, having that and go back home and read that, you know.
2: And were you starting a publication with people? Were you, was it a group
0: of you?
3: So basically, it was like kind of 15 of us, almost all of us. We were just uh, new gradually from the universities. And in March uh, 2013, we established a local news agency, ANAHA, in, in Rojava, in Qamishli. We do believe we have to document it, what's happening there. It was basically the demonstrations at that time, uh, end of 2011, beginning of 2012. And uh, from myself, why I, I wanted really the journalism, because I was always watching the, the the photos, or he or read about the massacres took place against the Kurd, and see that there is a very limited resources. It's like either someone from outside came and and have a few photos or few things, you know, about it. So out of that. Idea. I was always feeling like why we are not doing something. We are on the ground and maybe Assad will going to bombardment everywhere and all of us will going to be killed. So who are going to talk about here? Because there was no international journalists who interested in that area. It was all about Damascus and the opposition. So uh, this is why this idea of, of we need to document it, what is happening, that was the basic goal for us.
2: And h- how much of it were you trying to... Document it for your fellow citizens, your fellow local population of people, versus trying to document it for the world at large in the hopes that someone would come pay attention to what you were you were reporting on.
3: At that time, we were using two languages, Arabic and Kurdish. For the Kurdish, we knew that the Kurd people also basically the one who are from Rojava, they will not be able to read that one because we we speak our language but we we never been educated in the schools to read and write our language you know so we were just doing that for in, in Arabic for the Rojava people because the other part of Kurdistan they don't speak and for the Syrian people I don't think they were to our days interested in that area you know so as I said it was just like uh, throwing a stone in a sea you know like uh, we don't know if there will be eco or not we don't know if if really someone interested or not. But we knew if there will be a massacre, someone will gonna go back and, you know, check what was happening there. Then it's there.
2: And how did you keep it going? How did you find the resources and the, the equipment and everything else to, to be able to do it?
3: For example, mine and my siblings, we, we are all used to study in the college. So my father, he bought like a one laptop for us. So I had a laptop. Another friend had very small camera, very small, like a basic one. And uh, the normal phones, we have it at that time. So I remember later on, uh, we have the internet in my apartment, in, in my parents' apartment. And I remember it was super slow. And basically, we were sending video with a very shitty quality, to be honest. But even though it was so hard to send it, I was going to sleep and my hand still like on the laptop. You know, like sometimes I will wake up at three and just check, uh, okay, it's still like uh, going on, you know, like such a... I, I really if I describe it to you like uh, we didn't have a car so for example they were establishing councils and stuff in different villages and, and stuff around the city we didn't have a car either we're gonna uh, stop civilian cars and ask them a ride or we were gonna just you know like uh, stay on the road until we find someone like uh, be merciful to us and say like okay come over like Many times we get sick because we were standing under the rain, you know, like uh, with just without umbrella and just standing like there until someone's like, ah, yeah, come, come. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> uh, plus, we have to take it in consideration until 2000, uh, 2013, until March. Uh, the Ramelan city where I was uh, staying with my parents there, it was still under the control of Syrian regime. So when we started all this, I remember... Uh, there was a local TV uh, having tests for three hours, uh, so I've been their guest. The same day, the Syrian intelligence called my father and said, why your daughter is on this TV, you know, and threatening him to, uh, to fire him from his job. At the same time, I remember once we were covering, because as I told you, it was all like not obvious. We didn't have big cameras. We were just moving around, you know, as a normal civilian. I remember once we stuck, you know, like we were covering you Nauru's know, uh, celebration, the, the national days for the Kurds in, in one of those villages around, and, and it was late until I get back home. So there was a checkpoint for the Syrian regime, and he was like, who are you and why you are late until now, and kind of, uh, you know, like investigation with me. And it was good, I have a male friend with me who, who covered it up and, and make it fine until, you know, I survived. So it wasn't at all easy starting, uh, I can't remember all the details, uh, how we started, but a lot of funny things happened with us. Of course, a lot of painful stuff happened. <laughs> yeah.
2: Do you remember the first time that the international media did begin showing up and what your experience was when they arrived?
3: Um, my experience, 2013, there was this photographer, Eddie, from Netherlands. And I remember some friends of of on the street. They called me and they said, "How about you speak English?" And there is this person, no one with him. Please help him, you know. And he was taking the photos of the demonstration in that area. So I was like, "Okay, hi." And I, of course, I took him home and we have a meal and introduced him to the my family and stuff like that. The second one, it was I think the same year or or close to that period. It was a person, a journalist from Spain. Also, again. Uh, Some friends found that he don't speak the language and think so. They called me for help because of the language. Always I were like kind of end up to to meet them. And they were, of course, not going uh, further to Qamishli. It was just this area which is more close to the Iraqi border because it was uh, just liberated recently by the from the regime. So it was under the Kurdish forces. This is why they started to come, but not so deep in Rojava.
2: I see. So the Kurds, the Kurds had driven out the, the regime. And then some, yeah. And then some journalists started showing up, sort of behind that, to see what it happened. Yeah,
3: it was a gradually, you know. Like one year, I met maybe two persons, you know, and, and they are freelancer. They are not even with the specific media outlets or or things. So yeah, it was very, very few. Of course, the uh, numbers increased after Kobani, after the coalition started to interfere in Kobani, and came over. So this is why the journalists started to come in the. Rojava, you know, like basically. And then uh, they increased with 2017, the uh, military operation against the ISIS uh, capital in Raqqa. Then they, of course, get the peak uh, with the last stand up of the ISIS uh, in Deir in Baghuz. Then it was like a mass of, of all the international media all over the world. Uh, they came.
2: When you met these early ones who arrived, did they fit what your impression had been of what an international journalist was like? Like, were you surprised that they showed up, for instance, not knowing the language at all and kind of wandering around and trying to figure things out?
3: I mean, in my community, we are really very uh, kind of hospitality. It's so basic for us, regardless if you are a foreigner from which country and what, it's more like a taking care of you. So we don't judge, let's say. And uh, uh, for myself, I, I, I try to just give more information about what's happening here. Even the, I remember the Spanish uh, uh, journalist, he was so interested in my archive about like uh, when uh, the YPJ drive the Syrian soldier out of Romeland City. So I have all the footage of that. And he was like, Yeah, give it to me and I will pay to you. And I, that's what's shocking me. You know, like this is something, it's a history for me, you know, like it's not. Um, something valued money in, in a way. That was like little surprise for me, you know. Or for example, 2015, it was uh, uh, a French journalist, uh, Samuel Furi, he's now a friend of mine. He was like, "Habat, uh, you are great. Why you don't work as a fixer? And I was like, what that means? You know, like I didn't knew at all that. And all these years in the beginning, I was just helping because uh, I thought it's a kind of duty, uh, those people to be our voice. Uh, to the international media we. I, I, I saw that need you know like a me I can't be directly on the international media but those people are so I can transfer whatever information and things happening on the ground to them and they can be our voice there so th- that was the basic idea and way of dealing from my end uh, to them until 2017 it was all the same you know like this way of, of relation yeah and and in
2: 2017 when it changed? How, how did it change? How did you decide, okay, I will work as a, if you want to hire me as a fixer, fine, I will help. I will work with you as a fixer. What, what caused that, that uh, to evolve?
3: Yeah, 2017, I was working with a a French friend, uh, a female friend. She was in Rojava uh, earlier, and she even speak the language. And both of us, we decided to do a documentary about the Kurdish female fighters, the YPJ in Raqqa Operation 2017. But we had only one camera. We uh, borrowed another camera from a male friend in Qamshli, and we started to shoot and follow this brigade with the YPJ uh, to the front lines. And, and our goal, it was until the last day, you know, hopefully when they are liberating this, uh, the, the capital of the ISIS. But... Uh, in the middle of this process, this uh, male friend he threatened us. Either he will gonna be share, uh, you know, have a copy of this fo- our footage and be kind of partner in this, or he will gonna take his camera. And of course, we refused him taking our ca- taking our footage. So
2: some friend.
3: Yeah, exactly, men. To be honest, so <laughs> <laughs> so I say, we said okay. I told my friend, you keep shooting in the front lines following this brigade and I will accept this offer working as a fixer because my opinion in the beginning it was like a, I will not work as a fixer because I don't want to be a shadow of anyone and I wanted to keep my private projects. I don't want to be part of the others, you know. That was my philosophy and my uh, my idea about it in the beginning. And then I realized that it's really kind of tricky to do all that by yourself as a local Kurdish. Syrian female and nowhere uh, to get to those international medias. So I told my friend, go ahead with shooting and I will gonna work with these teams. That's because I was receiving a lot of offers. As this uh, friend, uh, Samuel Fury, we were just in a random meeting and uh, he had a, uh, someone with him to translate and it was super bad. So I felt like not, you know, comfortable with the not getting the right information at that moment. So I interfered and I started to help in that meeting. So he insisted to take my email, my number to work with him next time. And then he passed it to other friends. But me, I was like, no, you know, I am busy with my project. I focus on that. But when the camera story happened, so I said, OK, I will going to work with whoever came. So TF1, they came. Uh, they communicated with me. It's a French channel, TV channel. And of course, I didn't know exactly what to do. So I asked a local friend, what I should do with this. And they said, okay, you do the permissions, you go to the border, you, you hire a driver, and you bring them to the front lines. And, you know, you help them with the stories. And of course, uh, I was already in the front lines. And I was like, it's was it'd been like a month since I was there. So I knew everyone. And it was kind of a little easy for me. Uh, I was already doing this, you know, by myself. So if I have extra people, it's not only that. I, at this time, we have a car. We have a paid driver and a car. While in my case and my friend's case, we were always had checking on the checkpoint and going to the front lines with the logistic cars, with the ambulance car, with the, you know, whatever it's in your mind, we always, you know, and we find more stories in this way. <laughs> So this time it was a luxury to be in a car with the crew, you know, like it was great. So I went with them to the front lines. And of course I told them, everyone covering this area, let's do another way. So we went to the south front lines of Raqqa, while there was a, the most senior uh, ISIS friends or whatever, Amirs, they used it to be in that neighborhood, Mansoura, in, in, in Raqqa city. So when we arrived to their it was everything still there, you know, like the signs and everything, and the woman with the burqa and the ISIS flag and everything. So it was a very great footage have been, you know, like taken in that moment. When they published it in the TV, the TV station, they sent online, you know, like an air, me as a producer with them. And all the journalists who were covering Al-Musl in Iraq, they were watching that. So they started to say, "Who is this Chabad?" Because the TV writes the name, you know, like uh, "Thanks to Chabad," and then they write it down. And I started to receive like countless number. Everyone say, "We will come to Raqqa from Mosul and we wanted to work with you," you know, because they know that it's it's someone local who have to be there and understand the the story. So. I get money then I worked with another team I get enough money then I go and I bought a camera and I started to continue shooting our documentary and refusing the the you know like the assignments with the foreigners but in Bagu's for example I came back because some friends were literally begging to me like please we will not come if it's not you then I was like okay me also do you know it's kind of addiction the front lines, you can't stop it. You can't, you know, you resist a little bit like smoking. Somehow then you you are end up saying like, yes, Then you, you are there, then you cannot stop it again. So this is how I've been in this involving every time. And of course I have a close friends, those groups that we work together, with, most of them we've been close friends. So when they came, it's like automatically, yes, you know. <laughs>
1: Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE W I-S-E.com. WISE.com.
2: What is it that you need to know about people and the stories that the the journalists before you decide to work with them? Because I assume sometimes, I mean, all these people are showing up, there's a war going on. You might get people of all range of experience with reporting on war, or they're coming to look for this one specific shot, and they have an idea in their head of what it's going to be or, or a specific story. So what do you try to know from them before you, you know, decide to help them?
3: It's so important to know who is there because you are really going to the front lines. It's not normal story that you are going to cover together. You are going literally to the desk together. So it's have to be a team. It's have to be a little bit you understanding each other. So in my case, I worked with some of them and they started to recommend me to people like them, their friends. So it's it's been a cycle, which is all of us, we know each other, we understand each other, we have a similarities, our beliefs, our principles, our backgrounds, whatever, you know, like a, it's became like something spontaneously happening. You are similar, so you end up with the same group. As I said, when I had the TF1, then the many French TV started to communicate. But because the two persons, that's Benewet and, and another friend, when I worked with them, we developed kind of relations there, you know, like we started, we worked and it was great team. We, you know, the driver, the two of them and me, we worked very well together. So they called me, for example, and they said, like, this is a friend and how about please work with this person. They will recommend me to someone and they will recommend someone to me. And then we were going to communicate and this communication uh, through WhatsApp or Signal or whatever, then we were going to decide which kind of stories you wanted to cover. And I will suggest something, you know, like um, based on that. uh, This is how it's worked, to be honest. I more, more, you know, like also prefer to work with the writing outlets, uh, newspaper, magazines, books, more than TVs. The TVs are very big crews. We wear three cars and it's so hard to control. And the big TVs, like uh, people from BBC or from CNN or whatever, they bring like a security advisor. And I think... My work as a fixer or a stringer or a producer, it's kind of clashing with the security advisors on the ground. So because they bring some ex-soldier and they came with them and they never been in Syria. they never been in, on the ground.
2: Oh, a soldier from, from outside. They don't hire a local.
3: Usually, uh, the uh, security advisors who are working with the media, they are ex-soldiers, you know, like uh, from different countries, but basically American or, or European or Canadian, you know. And their experience in the military, uh, they invested to be security advisors with the media, and, you know, like people in the front lines, in the conflict. And I think that's not always work with the work of the local because part of my work as a fixer, it's a security also. It's a security analyzing, security assessment, it's a security steps. One of the main reasons why the TV for me it was hard to deal basically the big TV. Of course, it's a better money, but it's a harder. Uh, in a way to control. So I was more with this uh, trend of a small TV cruise, like uh, one cameraman, one correspondent. That was perfect so far. Uh, then it was like more people who are writing. So the stories, it's deeper for me and it's more diverse than visualizing only. Third for me, to be honest, I do prefer always to work with the women, And uh, of course, I don't deny that I have some bad experience, let's say. Uh, Swedish team. It was one of them. He was not listening to whatever I say, like uh, in the aspect of the security. So uh, I would gonna, for example, there is, is a headquarters to our days of the regime in Qamishli city. So I was gonna say, don't go in that direction. It's risky. You will be arrested. Then it's hard for us to, you know, to help you. And next day you see that he's not listening. This patriarchy macho thinks that they don't accept you. I just simply said. I I would never work with you. I worked with the same outlet with another correspondent, but not with that person. All the other teams that I worked with them, we are very close friends. We, you know, work blindly with each other. You know, like we are a team.
2: I mean, you're going into dangerous situations. How do you sort of balance situations in which the people you're working with may want to pursue something more dangerous than you would be comfortable with or not willing to take the risk, but still want the story? How do you sort of navigate that, that relationship, even when you are, you know, close, close with them and you're working well with them?
3: Right. This is the, the, the kind of tricky part. So I am in Syria. It's been 10 years of a war. Gradually it's developed. So it's not a choice for me to be there, but I am there. So kind of, we adapted on that, you know, like, uh, like everyone else there. We, we live our life there, you know. For those people, it's extra burden when they came there because you are not only concerned about your own security, you are concerned about their security. Because if anything happened to them, what you will going to tell their families, their relatives, their friends, their governments, you know, like uh, at the end of the day, they were going to ask you, at the end of the day, how you will going to deal with this if you survive, you know. Like always me, I, I take all this in consideration as a duty before doing any steps. I will just give you an example to understand how hard it is. I remember with this uh, German crew, we, were, we had a meeting with the ISIS fighter in uh, Romelan city. We finished it that day. It was 20 March 2019. We finished it, then we drive to Al-Hasaka city. It's like three hours far. We came to the SDF office and we told them, like, we want to go to Haql al-Umar, which is a place that's close to, Deir- it's in Deir Zor, in other provinces, while it's a close to the front lines. You know, there was rumors about defeating ISIS will be announced. The correspondent, he was like, we have to be there tonight. And until we finish the interview, until we get to Hasaka, it was already around 2, 3 p.m., and it was just those areas between al hasaka city and the resort where we are going, just liberated recently. So full of ISIS slipper sales. It's super risky, you know. And SDF don't allow any media or any journalists to cross this area while it's like it became close to be dark down, you know. Um, so at two maximum, it's the last crew can cross. Otherwise, you can't. So... We get there. We try to negotiate with the SDF media office. Please let us go. Tomorrow might be the announcement. We have to not miss that. And they were like, no, you can't go. It's risk. We don't allow anyone. Go tomorrow early morning. And the guy, the correspondent, he was like, no, we have to go. So I called the main office, the SDF main office. And I told them, can we cross? And they said, OK, Chabad, do you take the responsibility of this? And I said yes. They are uh, the team agrees, so we will go on our responsibility, and we're gonna drive very fast in order to, you know, be there. So they said, "Okay, we trust you. Go ahead." Before we go again, I told this uh, the correspondent, the driver, and the camera, the photographer. Three of you. You are, uh, of course, older than me. You are married. You have kids. Me, I'm not. So, are you sure we have to do this? And three of them said, yes. Then I said, okay, here we are. We get the car and we drive like a very, very fast and we get there. So, such a thing, it's not only my decision, it's the authority, it's the team, it's everyone. Mm -hmm. Another story um, with the ABC, we were in the Raqqa front lines and we were looking for the Yazidi brigade fighters uh, in order to interview them. We couldn't because the, the, the front lines, it was very, uh, you know, like a kind of circleizing all around the city. So it was a lot of different brigades and factions. It was hard to find who is where. We find YPJ, uh, female fighters uh, um, unit. So we said, okay, we're going to interview them. And they knew them before. So we interviewed them, and the commander, she's a friend of mine, Sosdar Derek, and she was great, we had amazing, you know, like, uh, interview with her, she was the, she drive us to the very front lines, and uh, when we get to her, uh, uh, you know, like, kind of very front point, uh, she told us, if you would stay here, uh, because during the night, the Americans are, like, uh, bombarding and air striking, and it's, all amazing footage you would like it it's all kind of lights you know like there so stay and stay with us and i will gonna allow you you know because she knew me she wanted to give a favor she wanted to ha- us to have exclusive uh, access and of course you know like it's it's such an amazing offer you don't want to miss that i was in and there was a security advisor and the correspondent so three of us we we sit and we discussed about that and At the end, we said, okay, uh, we can't stay because the team already decided to, to leave. You know, like it was the last day supposed to be in Rojava. It was 15 days we are working. So it was the last day. So they said, we have to leave. We left. They crossed to Iraq. The day after... I started to receive the news that uh, this commander, Sozdar, directly full martyr with the with her members, the brigade that we were staying, the place that we supposed to stay at that night, mistakenly been bombarded by the American and killed many fighters, including Sozdar and her colleagues. So, you know, like uh, this is the situation, and of course, in the ABC team. They were super attached uh, by this incident. And even the audience who already were following her story the days before, I mean, it's reflected very hardly on the team in New York and everywhere. And they were calling me and, you know, like even crying. And it was hard moments for all of us. Uh, So I told them we can continue her uh, story. We were going to show her funeral. You are not here. I am here. Let's do it like this. Let's show the Americans what is happening here. Let's show the Americans how easy to lose your life here. Let's show them what is the cost to protect the old security all over the world to defeat ISIS. It's such a woman, you know, such a great people like her. So they accepted and I sent them the footage of her funeral and they added extra uh, moments to her story. and. Um, yeah, do you know, to, until our days, uh, every anniversary of her, uh, uh, you know, like martyrhood, at that day, we are sending messages to each other. We're remembering her.
2: You and the crew.
3: Since 2017, yeah, the American team, yeah.
2: Yeah. Do you always sort of see the outcome of the stories you assist with? And and are there times when you see it and it it bothers you? Or there's something about the way it's framed that... You you feel like you were here, you saw this, and then you went home with this story. It's not the story that you should have.
3: Uh, of course, most of the time I am following the final story when it's out. You know, like when I started this, I couldn't follow up. To be honest, even, I didn't have kind of archive of that. When I been in Berlin 2021 for this residency issue, I needed that archive. So I started to make it here. It was the first time for me, even to see some of those stories that it's been out and I didn't see it. you know, I don't know. It's just like a too much crowded back home, you know. So, yeah, of course, not always I agree with the way that it's been shaped or out. Sometimes what's bothering me, it's like, a, you know, like this kind of journalists who think that they are clever enough to understand deeper than the locals or, or, or they don't get the context but they just you know, like write it in a way that they think it's right, while it's really not matching the reality on the ground. But uh, sometimes, of course, I message them. And and, uh, recently we had a story with The Telegraph about like this ISIS de-radicalizing center, and uh, they write it uh, in the title Guantanamo so i was like why this word It's there you know like it's completely opposite of what we've seen on the ground it's not torturing place it's totally the opposite you know and i said yeah they, 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 we don't write the titles it's the editors it's not us and um, in this case you know like uh, again it's industry and of course what's bothering me for example in covering syria i always say it like um, the international media framed and showed ISIS as the victims and showed Syrian as we are the one who is uh, responsible for that, which is not the right thing to do. You know, like uh, Syrian are the victims. Myself, I lost my brother in the wall on the hand of the ISIS. So, but the media, how they are showing this and how they are covering that, it's, it's like that. For example, they came and they keep reporting about ISIS kids in the camp. But never they report on the fighters' orphans who are the victims of ISIS. No one cares about those families, how they are survived. They are the ones who pay the costs. They are the one who lost their fathers and mothers. Or the civilian victims, they don't show it, you know. So I don't. It's my my uh, point. It's not always disagree with the what they write and how they shape the story. No, this is kind of more or less fine, but the story itself. Even I have argued with the different editors, like uh, why ISIS, why we are covering this, why we making celebrities, why you know, like why we are over covering this while we don't cover Syrian people, we don't cover. The, the IDPs from Afrin city, Sereqaniye city, those cities have been occupied by Turkey. Those people even not getting support from the UN. Why we don't cover this, you know? And they say, but really we don't also cover this, but this is what the news wanna, this is what the editors want. And I think I can see from my experience that there is a gap between the editors who are kind of elite in their luxury offices and the amazing journalists who are in the field, who are sympathizing with what what they are seeing on the ground and wanted to cover, but they have to satisfy the editors. And this is how we end up to have a kind of little gaps in a way of covering in general, you know? Like it's not a matter of like, yeah, they shape it in this way. The problem, I think it's it's bigger. How this industry is working, how this industry is deciding what they should cover why all of them they cover the same story, for example, from different angles or whatever, but but why it's all on the same line. We're supposed to have a media covering everything, you know?
2: And and when someone comes to you that you trust and wants to do one of those stories, like you've done I, I feel like the Washington Post series that that you worked on, I mean, some of that was sort of ex ISIS wives and children and did you say at the beginning of that i'll do it but why do you want to do this instead of an alternate story
3: that was 2019 so it was kind of still new i, I didn't came to this moment that's really because recently just i've been asked to do like again another story about in, in the camp and i was like psychologically now i can't so this is good that i am now here to have a little bit uh, distance. Even a friend of mine, very close friend of mine, she uh, she made a documentary about one ISIS woman, and she asked me to just have a look, and I told her I just can't. You know, like literally, I can't now. I need a little space from this subject. So with this Washington Post, why it was kind of interesting for me because we were a woman crew first: two women correspondent, camera woman, photographer, and me. So we were five women. That was for me like a dream, you know. It was also why important for me because they highlighted a profile of ISIS that no one cares, you know, because everyone just care about European, about the Americans, but no one care about Egypt. No one care about ISIS from Tunisia or from Morocco. So this is what I like about it. And they said, we're going to film part there and it's a series. Then we're going to continue in Morocco. Uh, So I said, like, great, you know, like, this is how we started working on that. Uh, but after the team left, there was a complimentary interview that's supposed to be done with this Moroccan person. That's we took his story, Osman, uh, because they went to the family and they have a message from the mother even. But it was like at uh, the new year at the end of December and the, the story had to be published. And to the team to get the, in the Syria, it's complicated to Rojava. So... They asked me to do the uh, interview so I done the interview and of course again I have the trust of the authorities there so even I have the message uh, the voice message from the mother for this uh, ISIS guy uh, Osman and I played the voice message for him and yeah he was crying and I told him if he wanted to record the message of course there was a military forces around us and I asked their permission to do this for the mother so this story, for example, I like it because of this angle. You know, it was completely different. And this person, he was like a kind of genuine regret, you know, like, uh, and uh, I don't know. Sometimes you interact with them. It's it's different, you know.
2: And And do people come to you with a general idea? Here's what we'd like to do. We'd like to find this type of person. Could you go find us four candidates that might be the main person in our story the main source for the story or do they ask you what do you think we should cover
3: so for example there is a a, a photographer uh, from reuters recently we were calling and he said How about what kind of stories you think we i have to come and i told him you are a photographer so visually you need a very strong visual thing you know so i think you we we can uh, cover the raids against ISIS slipper cells in the desert this is will be visually good. And basically with the anti-terror female brigade, it's like a strong with the woman with the mask and then they have their braids, uh, you know, out. It's really amazing. I wanted to do it by myself. I didn't have a time. So I was like, if you would come and we can do it together. I do the video, you do the photo. Or for example, we do like uh, this kind of drug stories because now it's became like a, a huge tool using in the war in Syria. So it's like a cartel. There, if we can uh, find something about that, as in, but this one it's for investigation report. So, so each subject is different. Each person, when they are asking me, it's different. What else? We also the mother of the politician uh, Havrin Khalaf, the woman that's been killed in the beginning when the Turkish-backed forces attacked Rojava 2018. The first target for them it was killing this politician Havrin Khalaf. So I done this interview because the team left Rojava. There was not enough time. So I done the complementary interview with the mother, for example. So I identified the places, the characters. Uh, of course, we discussed uh, you know, we develop it, how we want the story, how we shape it. And even two days ago, I was still working on a translation for some of this, uh, uh, you know, like uh, clips. Yeah, it's it's a process. It's not like a, sometimes, do you know, like uh, we do a lot of interviews. We discuss a lot. Sometimes it's not going anywhere. The team don't go, don't come, you know, uh, with the protection company from the uh, UK, for example, they were working on a fiction a series about ISIS uh, women who came from Europe or specifically from United Kingdom to to Syria. And I done all the research materials on the ground. So we had a lot of meetings, a lot of the team didn't come. I was working all the time on the ground.
2: Well, I, I mentioned to you in the, when I emailed you at first that I've worked with a lot of local reporters overseas over the years. And there's a situation that I... I'm very comfortable with usually, which is I'm trying to find someone or a specific thing in a country. And then there's another situation which I've been in less times, but occasionally, which is more like some of what you're describing where a person is setting up everything for me. Here, I'll line up all the people for you, I'll find them. In it. And to be honest, it feels very uncomfortable for me. Like It's like someone is babysitting you in your reporting and i don't like i don't like that feeling but i want to know what it feels like from your side does it feel like you are babysitting someone uh a professional reporter
3: uh I think I like it. I don't know, maybe because we as a woman have this trend in our characters or me as a culture of this hospitality of our, you know, like even sometimes when they are staying in the hotel, I am telling them I am grateful that my grandfather, he is not alive. Otherwise, he will kill me how I have a guests and they are staying over in the hotel, you know. So <laughs> I mean it's extra layers of of core responsibilities and burden or like for example with this uh, uh friend from TF1 he gets sick so I took him to the hospital and to the doctor and keep reminding him like did you take the medicines because really I don't want any one of them to to be harmed you know during the other And um, sometimes maybe it's extra. Uh, For example, with this uh, friend, Robert, working with the iHeartRadio, and Jake uh, Henrhan, they were working with me in Rojava over a series of podcasts about the uh, women's war. So I was, I find all the characters, 10 days we were working day and night. So the last day we have an appointment in Al-Hol camp, in this ISIS camp, you know. So we woke up in the early morning, and, and Jake, he told me, Chabad, do you know what's my alarm uh, thing? And I was like, what? And he said, like, I write it, uh, uh, woke up, Chabad, it's waiting. <laughs> so I was like, oh, my God, they were so scared that every morning, they know that I'm waiting, so they will be on time and woke up because just they know that I'm there, you know. <laughs> then we, we we were like, they were tired, you know, because we worked hard. And then Robert he was like, Habat, do you think we can cancel this interview? I was like, no, it's not a choice. You will do it. And he was like, okay. <laughs> you know, like there was no choice. <laughs> then, of course, we had amazing interview and we added, you know, but it's like a kind of, um, they also care, you know, like uh, it, it's mixed thing, you know, all of us, we care. For example, Robert, he, he, he cooked for us when we stayed in the guest house in Raqqa and you know it's a nice uh, thing you know it's it's not only me it's it's a team as i said it's all of us we care about each other you know
2: yeah but then as you highlighted i mean then they go home and if if there's either danger to you or damage to your reputation that's come about because of the reporting that they've done or that you've helped them do then you're stuck with it and they're not
3: I mean, as I said, most of the people that I am working with them, they are uh, trustworthy uh, because they've been recommended from a trusted friend that's already I worked with them, and uh, or for example, uh, recently there was a Croatian friend, and he was like, uh, "Habat, I want to really to do this interview with this Croatian woman, Isis, and uh, I want to really to get access to her," and there is no way can you find kind of illegal way to get her a phone or something, then I told him, no, uh, me, I don't risk my repetition. I am staying there and I want to, to not lose the trust of the authorities. So far, you know, like uh, I have that trust. It's, I build it over the time and it's so important for me to continue this because uh, otherwise I can't continue working on the ground. So it's like a kind of transparent relation. When it's something like, uh, I know it's not right, simply I just say, no, I don't want to be part of that, and I don't want to risk it. When they publish some uh, stuff, of course, this happened. There was uh, one story have been out, and officials were super angry. And, of course, they called me and I explained, like, uh, this person just came for one time in Rojava. They uh, maybe sometimes over pro uh, the opposition, Syrian opposition. They don't know... The Kurdish case or, or the, what's happening in Rojava, it's kind of not understandable by those people because most of those journalists, they were covering for years either the regime side or the opposition with the rebels, you know. So when they came to Rojava, it's something different for them. So they came with the stereotype in a way. Uh, and And from my end, I try to explain as much as I can in one week, about this system and we've done a lot of things, but if they don't want to see that, it's not my fault. If, if uh, they write it in a different way or, or you know paraphrase it in a different way, it's their fault. So um, it's a communication process.
4: Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the US designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
2: You of course have your own work, and particularly in 2019, you were writing about the Turkish invasion, and you wrote a beautiful piece for the New York Review of Books, and you were writing for uh, The Daily Beast and how do you decide when you're going to keep the ideas and the stories for yourself and not give them away to the people who suddenly arrive from overseas? And, and how do you sort of divide that up and carve out the time for your own work as opposed to helping other people with theirs?
3: To be honest I have to highlight that also I am I didn't done the journalism all the time starting from 2013 or, or uh, uh, 12 until our days it was because journalism don't give you the basic to survive in the aspect of the financially and I am doing freelancing so uh, I've I been in the humanitarian uh, work as well with the MSF with the UNHCR uh, for a while. This is why I don't have a lot of kind of journalism out because first, not everyone will gonna. The, I don't wanna do it in the local media because now there is a over maybe one thousand local journalists on the ground. So wow, I, from
2: zero, w- there was there was no one when you started, and now there are is it's thousands
3: everywhere. Even last time when we were covering with this uh, uh, France twenty four, you know, like a story of American withdrawing, there was a funeral. And we went and on this stage, there was a, like, I don't know, hundreds of journalists with the camera and the the person, the cameraman with us. And he was like, oh, what is this? Never. I saw this amount of, of people with these cameras and things. So I don't know. It's a reaction maybe after the war, but uh, it's there. So for myself, I was like, no, I will going to stick with the international media because I see the need. For us as a local to be heard by by telling the story by ourselves on the international media platforms. And this is hard to get there. At the end, I think it's already hard for the foreigner themselves. So for me as a local, it's really harder even. And I do prefer to send their teams on the ground uh, to cover such a conflict, not by locals uh, to be covered. Uh, and I understand this. And this is why, um, as I said, I changed my mind in the beginning. I was like, no, I want to do everything by myself. But then I realized that it's not about doing where you're going to publish it. Because you're pitching that in a different places and they are not interested in, you know. And it's hard to get that. So while if you are uh, uh, giving this story to someone who already the team of one of those outlets... For sure, it will be out, and for me, the story have to be out. You know, regardless how, but it have to be out. So, in this way of thinking, I give the story as a we are co-author, we co, you know, like we work it together. And I think, okay, I can do this for a while until I have a real name out. Then I, I gain the trust of the international media that they will accept it directly from me. In two thousand nineteen, when uh, I was covering the invasion, Turkish invasion, and what happened. There was an agreement between uh, SDF and Russia. So the Russian troops and the Syrian regime troops came and took over uh, some parts of Rojava. So the uh, international journalists have to be evacuated out of Rojava because... Technically, they are illegally in Syria, not coming with a visa from Damascus. They came from Iraqi border in a kind of legally entry point. So they all get out. And there was someone, I mean, like I saw the gap that there was someone have to, to cover this, you know. And I speak English. So I started, they, they, to be honest, even I didn't have a time to reach out to anyone. They were reaching out to me and say like, uh, "We are interested. What is happening there? So just please send us and just you know like joining different interviews and and covering on the ground with the uh, thing." Because for me at that moment, I didn't know if I survive or not. I risk everything. I just say, "I am here. Who wanna uh, know more about this? I will gonna feed them." I was sending photos, videos to everyone just to. And I was telling them, please, just publish it, just publish it, please. Like, just uh, let's stop this invasion. And and to our days, based on these political analytical people that they said, one of the main reasons that that invasion being stopped, it was like the media pressure. And of course, at that moment also, I discovered how kind of deep relation of mine with those correspondents that I told you this friendship uh, because most of them, they were calling and checking and offering, like, we can, uh, whatever you need, it, we can send money, we can try to evacuate you and your family, we can, you know, like, uh, everything. And they were, like, you know, crying, like, they care about Rojava, they've been there, they, they they feel like there there is a hope, so it was, like, a really kind of a taste for this friendship, you know, and they were saying, like, about write something, we we're going to publish it with our outlet, you know, like, this is how it happened at that time.
2: What kind of impact do you want it to have, these international stories where people come and they want to capture some version of what's happening? What kind of results do you think is possible from it?
3: I mean, as, first, it's documentation. Because Rojava, it's unstable area. We don't know any moment American will withdraw and Turk come and take over or the regime will come and take over or any possible scenario might happen any moment, you know? This is the situation of that area. So any story came from there, anything happening and and being kind of published outside, this is so essential for the next generations to know about this area, to know about this system, to know about this, if it survive or not. This is the process, you know? I don't expect it will gonna like make a huge impact, but it's documenting what's happening. Uh, showing everything for the history. Second, sometimes we really can't change the policies. For example, in the cases of the ISIS, all the countries are refusing to take them and they are burdened on the uh, autonomous administration. uh, The
2: former former members of ISIS.
3: Thousands of them, like over 70,000, they are there and no one want to take back them. With the media, we managed to put the pressure on the decision maker in different countries to take their own responsibilities, either to provide some support to the autonomous administration with the establishing prisons or stuff like that, or to take back their, uh, you know, like citizenship. For example, with these uh, Swedish orphans, there was a seven Swedish orphans for uh, one of these famous, you know, ISIS uh, senior. Uh, who himself and uh, both his wives been killed in the in the uh, bombardment airstrike during the last stand-up so the kids were there and they were malnutritioned and if anything happened to them it will be kind of blame on the autonomous administration so we covered that I, me personally I covered it with a different outlets specifically for this story and it was just in march we discovered it in may there was a delegation from Sweden. They came and they take them. And now they're having great life. So uh, sometimes it's direct impact. Sometimes it's long process. Maybe one day they will be discovered. For example, in my case, I, I always, as I said, I just do it without expecting anything because it's passion and I love it and I do believe in it you know, as a tool for myself. But um I mean sometimes I receive some emails or things from some people who read something because I have been you know like a part of different projects and how much that's reflected even on their personal life and then really I understand how much you know like a, there is a echo but uh, maybe I can't see that because I am in the middle of this chaotic crowded things on the ground I I can't see you know on a long term
2: we've had a lot of Uh, different foreign correspondents on on the show over the years. And oftentimes I'll ask them, especially if they're war reporters, you know, how they confront the sort of mental health difficulties that can come with that. They won't really want to talk about it because they'll say, you know what, what I experience is nothing compared with the, the experience of the people who are living it and who are there. And so they're a little bit reluctant to talk about it. But I feel like now I have the opportunity to ask you on the other side, reading the stories that you've both written and worked on. How do you kind of process all of that?
3: I mean, in my culture in general, these psychological uh, treatments, we don't have psychiatrists on the ground. We are a communal culture. For example, when I, I lost my brother, it's like uh, the relatives and all the community came to support because it's not your lost. They say it. it's not a person only from your family. So there is this communal culture that they don't give you this, you know, solo dealing with this trauma for myself. Because, as I said, I worked since a while. And, of course, I am not like just only in the normal community that I, I experienced some shelling or some stuff in the news. I went to the front lines. I've been with the fighters who fall. I, I lost uh, journalist friends, two of my very close friends, uh, Riz and uh, Delishan Ibish and they full martyr in uh, October 2018 when they were covering the ISIS in Zor, they were fleeing the civilian and they were uh, you know filming that and uh, two cars of the ISIS explosive cars came and exploded and they killed many including those two journalists friend they were the only one who were covering this before all the media came at the last phase to cover that they were covering that since 2018 you know so um, I'm always saying, like, uh, when I am covering this story, I am covering the story of my people. It's not I am um, a stranger. So this is why I think the story that I made with the team, it's deep, because, um, for example, when we done this uh, documentary about the American withdrawing, with these uh, YPJ fighters, with this female judge, with uh, the uh, mother of uh, uh, politician, Havrin Khalaf, all of these interviews... They were, of course. I was sitting in front, and when the correspondent asked the question, I, I asked them in the Kurdish language or, or you know, the Arabic language. And when they answer, they answer to me. They look to me, and they will cry, and I will cry. You know, it's like I I can't not interact with this because what they are saying, it's I know what it is. You know, I am part of this. They talk about some people that I know them. You know, like so. Sometimes, really, it gives depth to the story and more. Um, honesty, let's say, you know, like not superficial, normal kind of answers, you just give it because it's the same questions, let's say. So this is at that, but at the same time, of course, it's so hard and so painful. When I go back, it's not just like at the end of a job that's you just shut up your laptop and you go home and you sleep and you watch a movie. No, it's stay with me. For example, uh, one of the other uh, stories I done before I came here it was uh, for a book about non-state actors, and it's uh, as taking Rojava as example of that. So we interview uh, the um, women section in Rojava, and uh, one of these women uh, who been awarded as a feminist uh, all over Middle East. This woman, so she's from Qamishli, since uh, you know like a years she is a feminist. She is uh, doing this and. She showed us her body because it was just less than a month when Isis Slipper cells tried to kidnap her from uh, Qamishlim, from the city that I am living in, you know. And when such an elderly woman showing the scars on her body, or you imagine like uh, she could be killed, you can't just forget about this, you know. It could be you. Not only that, it's like, a, I'm a Kurd, she's a Kurd. I'm a female, she's a female. It's, it's much deeper than to just write about it and that's all. No, it's, it's something so deep, it stays with you. So for me, of course, I, when I told you I've been for a while disconnected to do uh, even fixing or journalism, it was one of the main reasons that. Uh, I worked with the UNHCR because I thought I can't anymore do journalism. Uh, because I started with the war, and and I just do the worst, war stories, you know. But in in UNHCR, it was, again, IDPs and refugees, and their stories, it was, again, hard. So I quit from the UN because I find myself, again, with the same context, in a way. And what helped me, um, it was, like, a little bit to take some time off, and also to get uh, uh, psychological sessions, I get a psychiatrist and I done online uh, session. I think, yeah, this is why even the, the, the quantity of my work, it's reducing because of it's reflecting to on this, you know, like it's, it's linked to the psychological uh, hardships to even if I am in Qamishli sometimes, I just, I know I, I have a lot of stories to do. I have a list that's with, this, with the, I don't know, you know, kind of tens of stories that I still planning to do but I don't have energy for that. Even now I have the equipment, I have the camera, I have the things, and I have guilt to not do it, you know? But I think these psychological hardships and accumulation, it's, I am paying the cost of that uh, because I didn't deal with that. I didn't have time for that. I didn't have anything to do with that. And this is why it's hard to just pick up the camera and go and do the story, you know? Like it's became harder now.
2: Do you think when you when your residency gets sorted out and and you can go back that you'll be ready to embrace it again? I mean, particularly with the risks, because yeah, weren't you also didn't you also face threats before you left from from multiple
3: sides? I mean, uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, nationalist Turkish na- nationalists or or jihadists, you know, around. So I always avoid to to mention a lot of informations on the social platforms. And this is why I am not active on the social platforms as a way of protecting myself uh, in the aspect of where I am or what I am doing or, you know, like I don't make a lot of noise about it. I just try as much as I can to be low profile. I am even recently was avoiding to stay with my parents because I felt if anything happened, I don't want to harm them. So I stayed in Kamishli. Also recently, Turkey are using uh, drones uh, assassinating uh, people in Kobani and in um, different cities, in Qamishli, in different cities, by identifying uh, specific targets, civilian or military. And, you know, like, there is no way you can escape this because it's a drone and it's a missile. So it's like, you know, you can't... This is a little bit... I feel like it's another level of uh, of, of way to be killed. So... It's scary, but at the same time, when you think that all your friends, relatives are on the ground, you know that you are not better than them. So you have to just go and continue this, you know, and accept it as a destiny. I've been part of this and, and they have to continue. Because even if I am now in Europe, it's not relaxing. It's not like you can disconnect from what's happening there. It's not like uh, you can just live your life as nothing happened. You can be a normal person after that. I don't think anyone can do that, and neither me. So for me, it's so important to continue this. For example, when when Sozdar Derek she full martyr before uh, in her interview, the correspondent asked her after the war, "What you were gonna do?" And she said, "I want to be a journalist." For me, I am continuing the path and the dream of those people. It's not about me. It's about the community. It's about like a a project there. It's about a hope. It's about a lot of other things, you know, beyond my personality. I am just one individual out of millions, you know.
2: That's it for this week's show. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. I want to thank Habat for coming on the show. Uh, Really incredible conversation and I really appreciate it. I also would like to thank our editor this week, which is Jackie Sajiko. Our intern is Noelle Matier. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. And we are brought to you in partnership with Vox. We really appreciate them. We appreciate you, the listeners, and we will be back next week.